as we look at John chapter 11, it's such a daunting task to, um, to go through Scripture in such a way, but it's such a, I don't want, wouldn't want to do anything different. And so, um, so this morning, we're going, to finally, uh, we're going to finally call forth Lazarus out of that tomb that we've been building up for for the past two Sundays. And so we're going to be looking at John chapter 11, verses 38 to 46, and close out this story of Lazarus this morning, and then uh, move on. Though it's not going to be the last that we're going to hear of him, we're going to hear from him a little bit later indirectly, but nonetheless, his name will come up again. But this morning, I pray as you open your Bibles, you follow along there, verses uh, 38 through 46. And God's inspired word reads, So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. But Mary, the mother of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Father, I would just ask a blessing upon your reading of your word. And now as we attempt to do inadequate justice to this portion, Lord, would by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you just illuminate this text for us, illuminate our hearts and our minds as to how we're to understand it and not just understand it, Lord, but we know it's a twofold process, both to understand and also to do. And so... Um, Father, we ask for your direction and your leading this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So pray, or Lazarus, come forth. Pretty simple title, I guess, and appropriate. But today we will find, or we will finally come to the resurrection of Lazarus. This is the seventh and the final of the seven sign miracles in John's gospel. John calls them signs because of the importance is not only on the sign itself, but what they are pointing to. Signs are used as pointers, as advertisement, if you will, of what lies ahead. And in John's gospel, as well as in our world today, that's what signs are used for. Chances are you didn't pay much attention to signs as you came out here to Holly Grove, unless this is your first time coming here. You didn't pay attention to a whole lot of signs coming here because you knew exactly where you are going already. But reaching the church building, as you've seen the sign that says, Welcome to Holly Grove, was not your destination at all, was it? But the sign only informs you that you have reached your destination. There is a final step in the process of this journey, is there not? Many of you may have taken your kids to Disney World. 
my daughters have not forgiven me yet for not taking them. Uh, but many of you have taken your kids to Disney World, and just seeing the sign that welcome that says "Welcome to Disney World" was not your destination. You didn't turn around and say, wasn't that great, kids? We got to see the sign that says, welcome to Disney World. How would have that gone over? I suspect you would not have won any Parent of the Year award. In fact, your children might have called Children's Services and filed a child abuse complaint on you. I'm afraid this is often the approach to the miracle signs of John's gospel and all the miracle signs in the biblical text. So much excitement and emphasis is put on the sign itself that what the sign is pointing to is often or can easily be missed. And so briefly this morning, I just want to remind you of the past six signs that we have already covered or passed, if you will. First, of course, is Jesus turning water into wine. And this is Jesus taking something as, as water and changing its properties into something else. Second, we have the sign of Jesus healing the son of the nobleman. And Jesus showing that he's not limited to being in a physical location. If you recall that Jesus healed the nobleman's son from a distance. Jesus wasn't even present. Third, we got Jesus healing the lame man beside the pool of Bethesda and saying that <clears throat> Jesus is pointing out his power over sickness and disease. Fourth, you got Jesus feeding the 5,000. And this is pointing to Jesus' power of, of multiplication, his power of being the sustainer and the giver of life, taking little and making much out of it. The fifth sign was Jesus walks on water, demonstrating his power over nature. And then the sixth sign was Jesus healing the blind man. And this was Jesus pointing out that he has control over darkness, that he is, as he says, I am the light of the world. And this will bring us to our final sign, as John calls them in his gospel. And uh, <clears throat> this is raising Lazarus from the dead. So what is this sign pointing to? What does this mean, or, you know, of, of, or is the only meaning that Jesus raised a man from the dead? I don't think so. What does it mean? But before we can get in there, what, see what this greater importance of this sign is, or what it is pointing to, or what this sign is advertising or selling, if you want to use that type of language. Before we get there, uh, we'll have to uh, first cover the verses that come before it and not just jump to those application conclusions. And so we want to start with verse 38, where we've begun reading. And uh, I just want to, again, re remind you uh, of these little, little, two little words that we use in English here, that Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. And again, I want to remind you of what we said last week in verse 33, as, as Jesus was somewhat angry, in a way, at the people, because those who should have known refused to know. Those who should have recognized Jesus didn't recognize Jesus, but instead rejected Jesus. And today we have the same exact Greek word, but it's in a, in a different context. And so it doesn't mean that Jesus went to the tomb angrily this morning at all, but there was a, a deep 
movement, a deep groaning within him that no matter all the things that he's done up to this time, and he knew what he was going to do, and he knew what was in the minds of people, and how some of the people came to the tomb with a let's wait and see attitude. Some came to the tomb with this, this attitude of doubt, this attitude of not really wanting to have an encounter with Jesus, but instead just being a naysayer, if you will, and, and kind of standing back, maybe with their arms folded, and I can't wait to say I told you so when, when this doesn't work, or whatever might have been going through their minds. Bible doesn't tell us those things, but as, as humans, as yourself, and I know I myself can be pessimistic at times and may have some of these very similar thoughts. And so as Jesus goes to the, goes off to the tomb knowing exactly what he's going to do. And by the way, he also knows what's going to be the result of what he's going to do, but he's deeply moved within as he came to this, to this tomb. Next, in verse 39, I, I kind of find this interesting when Jesus says, remove the stone. Well, wait a minute, Jesus. Why don't you move the stone? You're going to raise the dead man. You're trying to tell me that you can't move the stone, though you're going to raise a dead man from the tomb. Now, that's maybe what some of them could have been thinking, but Jesus didn't say he was going to necessarily raise this dead man from the the the. the, the grave, if you will, but I am reminded that, that Jesus did not uh, take that task upon himself, and he just didn't go ahead and remove the stone himself. He got those that were around him, especially Martha. He calls out Martha here, maybe because she's such a doer, maybe because she was such an active person, and that Jesus involved her in the participation, or won her participation within what he was going to do, but nonetheless, he says, move the stone. Jesus could have commanded that stone to be moved. Even I was, even your mind might have been drawn to John the Baptist. When John the Baptist was, was baptizing people, and down over the hillside, as I see it in my mind, came these self-righteous religious people. And they came, and John the Baptist, you brood of vipers, who told you to escape the judgment of God, right? And he says, don't even tell me. I know what you're thinking before you say, don't even tell me you're sons of Abraham, because from these stones... God can raise up children under Abraham. Stones are not a problem for God. Stones are not a problem for Jesus. And yet Jesus wanted their involvement here in this miracle, this last sign that he was going to do. God does not need our help, but God enjoys and God wants our involvement. God does want that. And I think another application that we could just as a brief one make here is that action builds faith, does it not? I mean, have you ever done that? I'm sure you have. Stepped out in faith, doubting, maybe even doubting, and then it came to fruition or, or, or whatever that might have been happened and how that increased and strengthened your faith. Well, Martha's response, though, is, is a typical response, as we see in verse 39. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, Seriously, you want me to move the stone? You know he's been dead for four days. By now, he is going to stink. You know, I certainly don't want to make light of that, but I do have to laugh at myself at times how I find myself where Martha was and saying, okay, Lord, I hear it. I got you. I understand. But let me inform you, right? Let me tell you why what you're asking of me is not a good idea. 
just in case I know you're divine. Maybe you haven't smelled a body who's been dead for four days, right? I mean, do you think maybe maybe some of those thoughts were going through Martha's mind? I, I, I don't know. I certainly don't want to read too much into the text right there. But our action or our inaction does not save or condemn us. And so I want to take a pause right there for a moment and separate these two out just a bit. Sometimes we think that action or inaction is what actually saves us. That's not what saves us. And sometimes on the negative side of it, that we feel that our failure to be obedient to God, to be to, to our, our failure to, to follow God's leading and direction means that God can no longer love me, or at least that, that God has dismissed me. Well, I hope by this time that you understand, as we've working through John's gospel, that there is nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. Those who are God's children will continually and always continue to be God's children. So your inaction or your action will not save you, but I might offer to you, as we're going to see in verse 40, that you can certainly miss out on a blessing in your life, right? I mean, following God's direction. Have you had that feeling before where God has asked something of you? Not audibly, but in your spirit you felt a leading of God's direction, and you followed through with it. Huh? Did that not strengthen your faith? I'm, I'm sure it has. But what I want you to see here in verse 40, this is exactly Jesus' response to Martha. And Jesus says to Martha, Martha, did I not say to you that if you believe, that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now, again, just as a little footnote and to back up just for a moment before we go forward, this idea of Mar Martha, if you believe, now, now Lazarus was not raised from the dead because of Martha's belief, right? God is not limited to my inability or my ability to believe in something that he's going to do. So this idea that if you just have enough faith, if you believe strong enough, you can be raised, you can be healed, whatever it is, it's nonsense. No, God does not need our belief to act. What he, what he is speaking of here is that uh, uh, if you believe, you are going to see exactly what it says, you're going to see the glory of God work. It's not hinged upon her faith, but a blessing is hinged upon her faith, if you want to use the word blessing. This joy, this, this building up of her faith will be missed if she does not believe that God can do what God is saying that he can do. And so, so Jesus says, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Again, we're going to have to pause here just for a moment because of this idea of, of glory to God, what is that? Right? Well, there's two types of glory. There might be others, but there's two major types. And you've got some subtypes, but there's two major types of glory. You have the intrinsic glory of God. Then you've got ascribed glory, right? You've got the intrinsic glory, and then you've got the ascribed glory. The intrinsic glory and the ascribed glory. Now, the ascribed glory would be like Psalm 29, verse 2, right? Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. This is the glory that we ascribe to God. As we gather together on a Sunday morning like this, this is exactly what we're doing. We're ascribing the glory due God's name to him. As we sing about God, as we thank God, as we lift up our prayers and our concerns to God, we're giving glory due his name. That's what we do this morning. Part of coming to church, certainly we don't have to come to church that you might be in your mind, but why wouldn't you want to? 
Why wouldn't you want to gather in such a way and bring glory to God? Is he meaningful to you in your life this morning? If he is, let's ascribe glory to him. But what Jesus is talking about here, back to verse 40, what Jesus is talking about here is intrinsic glory. And intrinsic glory is certainly something that belongs naturally. It's just who God is. If you were going to list off the attributes of God, that would be the intrinsic glory. Martha, it is who God is. Martha, do you really want to see me for who I am? You believe that I'm God, but do you really want to see to a whole nother level what that may look like? That's what Jesus is referring to here in verse 40. Did I not say if you believe, you will see the glory of God? You will see the glory of God. So in verse 41, evidently, Martha was convinced because she said, or it says, so they moved the stone. So evidently, Martha decided, yeah, go ahead, move the stone, fellas, whatever it might have been, right? Because they did move the stone. And then Jesus prays to his his father, and we don't have time to, to dig into this one, so I'll just introduce it here, then you can do some research into that, some of your own personal studies. But Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, have as past tense. So evidently, this is a prayer Jesus had, maybe as he's walking up to the tomb. I don't know. How do our minds go in areas such as this? It was obviously some pre- preparation made between Jesus and the, and the Father, because he says, Father, he says, Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have, have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. So there's not a doubt there that you don't, you don't hear my prayers. But because the people standing around, I said it. That's why I said it. So that what? So that they may believe that you sent me. So that they may believe that you sent me. So that made me believe that you sent me. Over and over and over again through the Gospel of John, his whole purpose, his whole point, his whole bias, if you will, was that so that you may believe, so that you may believe. And so again, I will ask you this morning, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Over and over and over, that is the message of John. Do you believe? Well, God may not be asking you or or me to to remove the the stone in front of the tomb. But nonetheless, what God is asking of you is just as important as that. Are you being obedient to what God is asking of you? Is there something that God has laid upon your heart? Is there that stone, that proverbial stone, blocking off that tomb that once it's removed, you can see the glory of God in action? Has God been asking something of you? It's a point-blank question. If you've been wrestling with something, may this morning and this text and these words be your affirmation, just move the stone, (laughs) right? I don't know if God's been speaking to you, so I just kind of lay that out there before you. If he has been, move the stone so that you can see the glory of God. But now let's turn to the two verses that are at the heart of this story, at the heart of this message here this morning. And I want to just put them before you you again on these last few verses. 
It says, when he had said these things, after he prayed, he had said these things, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. And this is the, this is the crescendo, if you will, of this whole story. And this is what this story builds up to is this particular event right here. So in these two verses, we see the authority of Jesus over life, right? And at the heart of the story is the question of life, right? At the heart of the story, at the heart of this sign, and what this sign is advertising, what this sign is pointing to is the story of life. And the, story, and the question is this, who has authority over life? Do you? Do I? Who has authority over life? Here, even before the last day, in anticipation of it, Jesus cried, Lazarus, come forth. Proved to be an instant when the dead heard the voice of the Son of God and sprang to life. It is not John's point. It is not John's point. But some commentators have made, and in, in, in other, uh, more of your devotional commentaries have made the point, Jesus didn't name, name any of the other recipients of his miracle, be it healing miracles or whatever they were. They didn't name them, but here he did Lazarus. And it has been, been mentioned that if Jesus would have not called out Lazarus, the whole cemetery would have come alive. Well, I don't know about that, but... Certainly, Jesus has the authority authority over life, and it's something for you to speculate on nonetheless. But I think a point uh, that we could make here is this idea that even before, even before Jesus has said, this is the moment that is going to happen. This is going to happen. And this is all based around that seventh sign, so, so stay with that. This is what that sign is pointing to. And I want to read to you John chapter 5, verse 25. And when Jesus said this, truly, truly, I say to you that an hour is coming and is, is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will live. And here it comes to fruition, right? Here, just a couple of chapters later in the life of these very same people that heard Jesus make, those, those, make that statement, now see it lived out. And so what is meant here, so again, we're going to, have to take a little bit of a pause, and I want to make two points about this particular verse, because the dead here, he says, the hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Now, it's a twofold death here. I mean, obviously, first, the dead which are spoken of here are the spiritually dead. There are those who are far from God, those who are dead to God, those who cannot even hear the voice, the voice of God, those who are without Christ, those who, who hear and accept the call, the voice of Jesus, those are the ones who will live, and those are the ones who will be saved. As Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. It, it, just saying that reminds me of uh, Charles Spurgeon. I guess that was one of the things that he constantly preached over and over and over again. You must be born again. And uh, after this one service, a lady came to, to Mr. Spurgeon there and, and said, 
Charles, why do you keep saying over and over again, you must be born again? He said, well, because you must be born again. So that is the point. You must be born again. And so Jesus is talking about those who are spiritually dead. They're dead in this particular verse. But when they hear the voice of God, they will come to life. And of course, point two is that Jesus is physically talking about those who are physically dead. Those who have literally died over and over. We see Jesus using this literally and using spiritual and literal uh, metaphorically, right? They're kind, of, they're kind of interchangeable as he goes back and forth. How do we understand spiritual living outside of spiritual dead or outside of physically dead? And Jesus has drawn this analogy. You're physically dead. You are dead. You can't hear. You can't function. You can't make any choices on your own. You can't do any of that. And he's drawn this analogy that, but though in spiritual life, when you're spiritually made alive, you have all that faculty brought back together here. And just a few verses later, though, Jesus continues. And he says this, do not marvel at this. Well, I would have marveled at that. But, but do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did, those who died or did good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. He says, don't marvel that those who are spiritually dead, those who are spiritually dead will live. But be marveled and pay attention because the day is coming when all who are in the tombs are going to hear the voice of God. And all who are in the tombs, if you want to use, if you want to say it this way, all those, they're going to give an account for the things that they have done in this life, in the here and in the now. Every single one of us will do that. So I want to be clear this morning. Lazarus is dead, Right? I mean, I haven't seen his physical tomb or anything like that, but, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that Lazarus is dead. See, once again, Lazarus found himself back into that cold, dark cave, that cold, dark tomb. But the day will come. The Bible calls it the last day when his name will once again be called. Lazarus, come forth. But this time, this time it will be for all eternity. He won't go back to that grave again. Have you? Have you surrendered to the voice of the good shepherd? Have you surrendered your life to God? Every single one of us will stand before God one day. And some want to dismiss it. Well, that's okay. The time is coming. I guess we'll all know the truth then, will we not? Have you surrendered to God totally, wholly, completely? Is Jesus Lord and Savior of your life? Is he king of your life? Or is there someone else? Is there someone else? I guess for us today, in our context, we could call it Jesus president of your life. In fact, there might be a book titled that way, Jesus for President. I'm not sure. I'm a title reader, as you know by now. It's a good one anyway. Somebody ought to write the book. Is Jesus your president? We could call that today, right? Is Jesus Lord of your life? That's exactly what they were saying when they were saying Jesus is Lord. They were saying Caesar is not. And for that... They were beheaded, and for that, they did face the lions and all the other horrible things that go with it. But are you ready? I know you're all church people, and I know you're all religious people. I know you're all professing and confessing Christians, but, but are you ready? Are you for sure? Are you ready for your name to be called? See, verses like 45 and 46 can give us pause. Where they say many of those, many of those who were there, many of these Jews, many of these religiously self-righteous religious people that were there, they seen what Jesus done. Some believed. Others went off and told the authorities 
told the other people that what Jesus had done, in essence, did not believe. Are you among the believers this morning? But back to this is a story about life and who has authority over it. This is a hotly, hotly debated topic today, is it not? Hmm? You didn't see that one coming. Who has authority over life? Who has authority over life? Well, let me tell you, life begins at conception. Life begins at, at conception. I don't want to get too far off into those weeds, but as we look at this sign this morning as Jesus having authority over life, who gets to choose what lives are worthy of living and which ones are not? That is a real question for us in 2020. So just very shortly and just very briefly, I want to go through a process here, and I want to point out to you Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. When the angel spoke to Joseph and said, Joseph, do not put aside Mary. Don't put her away secretly or however you wanted to do it for all the right reasons. You can certainly side with Joseph because Jesus or the angel said to Joseph what? The child who has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The child who has conceived. At what point was Jesus a life? Conception. Who has authority over life? In Luke chapter 1, verse 31, when the angel came to Mary and told Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. At what point was Jesus a son? Luke chapter 1, verse 41, when when Mary went to her aunt, Elizabeth, and as Mary walked into the room, Mary said, what? The baby within me leaped at the sound of your voice. That baby was John the Baptist. Who has authority over life? It is a hotly debated topic today, and it's a good one. It's not one we want to dismiss, but it's one we want to work through and think through and be respectful of. But the question at the root of all of that is who has the authority over life? Who is the giver of that life? This is a question that must must be answered. In John chapter 1, verse 3, all things come into being through him, through Jesus. And apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. Chapter 1, verse 10, the world was made through Jesus. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us, yet for us there, there is but one God, the Father, from whom, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him, through Him. Colossians 1, 16, for by him all things were created. Hebrews 1, 2, through him all things he made, <clears throat> through whom also he made all things, excuse me, through whom also he made all things. And of course, we go back to the origins, go back to the beginnings, go back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and we see that God, that Jesus is our creator, is our creator. And all that we've done here, just briefly, that I offer to you 
We need to do those things. Scripture interprets Scripture. Just bibliology, right? We take a topic and we trace that theme throughout the biblical text, and it all hangs together. You pull out one, and it all comes crashing, crashing down. But doing this little short exercise this morning, I, I think we've demonstrated that the Bible, if we believe it or not, that's a side issue, but that the Bible is quite clear that it is Jesus who is the author, right, who is the giver of life. That's what Jesus is demonstrating here this morning. It's exactly this final sign demonstrates his authority, Jesus' authority over life, both to give it and to take it. It's not our right. It is God's right. It's Jesus' right. So we began switching gears, leaving that there, moving forward. We began talking about signs and, and what does this point to? And what does this point to? <clears throat> Our focus should be rather on the, uh, what this sign of raising Lazarus from the grave is about, what it's pointing to versus getting hung up on this actual miracle because the miracle had a point and a purpose. And so what can we learn about this sign? What is it pointing to? As I said, Lazarus is dead. I'm not 100% sure I'd want to be raised from the tomb and just to, to die again, but nonetheless, uh, well, what's it pointing to? Well, I have five, five quickly that we will cover here this morning. First, the sign points us to ourselves. Before our conversion, we are dead. There is nothing a dead man can do to save himself. We see it quite easily in this story here today. Lazarus did nothing to come out of that tomb. Say it was your story. We did nothing to save ourselves. As a dead man, dead woman spiritually, there's nothing you could do other than the work of God. And that is the second thing that we see this sign points to, and that is the effectual call of God. When Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come forth, there was no argument. Lazarus didn't say, no, God, you know, really, I'd prefer just to be dead. He didn't say that. And when God does a work in somebody's life, listen, it's a tenet of our faith. When God does a work in someone's life, it takes its effect. It takes its effect, right? God doesn't undo what he did. I know many, and I've lamented, and you guys have all helped me do group therapy. Thank you for that. I can send the bill to my wife um, for that, but... I've, I've lived with lots of guilt, thinking that, wow, if I'd messed up here, I'm no longer saved, these types of things, right? And it just causes you to not live a fulfilled life in God. We must understand when those whose God is called, that work will take an effect in their life. And three, this sign points us to our new birth. <laughs> As I've already said, you must be born again. He must be born again. Number four, this sign brings us to our, our witness. It's only God who can save anyone. I know that on your hearts are someone who needs to come to Christ. And you become frustrated and you want to argue and want to try to talk them into the faith. And I'm not saying you should stop. You should continue. But don't allow yourself to become defeated by that. Because it is God who raises the dead. 
It is God who gives life to the words. It is only God who can bring to fruition the evangelism, the witness of your faith that you've done for others. You've done for others. Number four, number five, <clears throat> this sign points us to our future. Points us to our future. We too will die one day, and we too will be raised from that cold grave. Right? Just points us to our future. Are you ready? Are you ready? First Thessalonians chapter four, verses um, sixteen to eighteen says, "For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven." with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and will the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, it happens simultaneously at the same time, and we who are alive will remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Dead when Jesus returns, alive when Jesus returns, it doesn't matter. We'll meet in the air and go to heaven together. We are to comfort each other with these words. Is that comforting? Or is the thought of death, thought of the end of life, does that bring a heaviness? Does that bring a heaviness? The day will come when you too will be called forth by Jesus. Are you ready? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? So that by believing, you can have life, eternal life, in his name. Father, I thank you for these words of yours from this text. Father, I pray that as you witnessed here together with, this, with us this morning, Father, you're the giver of life. You grant life. You claim life. Lord, it's all you. You are the potter, we're the clay. You do as you will with the clay that is yours to begin with. But Father, as we think about what you may be asking of us, be it from moving a tomb or from simply believing, from simply surrendering our heart, our life fully and completely to you, Father, however you worked among us this morning, would your effectual call have its way, have its roots in each one of our lives? And again, Father, I would just ask you to search the words that were mine. If they're accurate, Lord, may they so be. But if they're not, Lord, would you just remove them from our memories? I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn in the Life Songs to number 233. Life Songs number 233. And please stand and remain standing for the benediction. <laughs> <laughs> 